We rise this morning to read our sermon text. You'll find it in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, perhaps even in front of you, and you'll find uh, this morning's text on page 800. And 86, and where we come to this morning in our studies of John's gospel is the last part of chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. So let me read that text for us and pray afterwards for God's blessing, and then we'll continue on. So listen as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. We would seek you this morning, Father, with our whole heart asking that you would let us not wander from your truth, praying also that you would comfort us today in our troubles. We know that your promise, it gives us life. So may the unfolding of your truth today do give us light in Christ, and may it impart understanding to our souls, understanding that we receive by your Spirit and in your Son, through whom we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Sometimes it's the most important people in in church history uh, that that tend to be the most obscure or even the most forgotten. One such man is named Edward Kimball. 1858, 
Edward Kimball was teaching a Sunday school class at a church in Boston. And as so many earnest and diligent Sunday school teachers are, he cared greatly for the students that came to his class and had a particular concern for a student, a 19-year-old student in his class that clearly didn't know anything about Jesus. He was teaching this class at this Boston church that included what we would now think of today as college-aged men. And this 19-year-old student, he was a store clerk at a nearby shoe store. And so one morning, Kimball decided that he was going to the shoe store. And he was going to tell this 19-year-old man about the truth of Christ. Uh, However, his resolution was firm, it was also filled with a lot of timidity and nervousness because Kimball was a man who didn't normally do such things. And so as he was on his way down the street, he actually, due to his nerves, he passed by uh, the the shoe store and only realized it a couple of blocks later. And as he eventually recalled the story, he said, "I, I resolved there straightforward that I would go into the door and get it over with. And so he went into the shoe store, and he found this 19-year-old student stocking the shelves there. And as Kimball would also later say, he said, I offered weak statements about the love of Christ, and then he got out of there. Well, that 19-year-old was a man named Dwight Moody, who was immediately converted. And some of you might know it was D.L. Moody who was at the end of the 19th century and considered by most as, of his generation at least, the greatest American evangelist. But nobody remembers Edward Kimball, an ordinary man who shared an extraordinary gospel. And the reason I tell you that is because what we come to in our text today is, is a story that actually gives us, in John's gospel, outside of John the Baptist, the two greatest evangelists, Andrew and Philip. And yet, quite understandably, I think, uh, many Christians don't think too often about Andrew and Philip as evangelists. And they would have it exactly that way, wouldn't they? Because the point is not them They're not the center of the story. They're not the primary protagonist. The point is the one whom they preached, the one whom they declared. And that's what we're going to see along the way in our text here at the end of John chapter 1. Because what John has been doing, if you've been with us in recent weeks, he's keen and he's very much earnest that we would know who Jesus is and that we would believe in who Jesus is. So he told us right at the outset of this majestic prologue that Jesus is the eternal God. He's the personal God, graceful, truthful, and visible God. And then as the unfolding of Jesus' earthly ministry began, what we saw last week, it focused on this man named John the Baptist, this prophet that came out of the wilderness. You might remember, he sounded like a prophet. Kids, he looked like a prophet. He ate like a prophet. And so everyone was wondering, who is this man? And John comes to declare another man. Uh, Where we left off last week, you might notice verse 34. The Baptist says, I have seen and bore witness that this, Jesus, is the Son of God. And so what's happening in John's gospel in the early chapters is what we find the truth of Jesus is beginning to quite clearly and quite quickly. It's expanding. So last week, John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. This week... We see that knowledge expand out to the early disciples. Then in chapter 2 and 3, that knowledge goes to Jerusalem and Judea. 
And chapter 4 of John's gospel goes to Samaria and Galilee. It's expanding. And the simple idea that I want to put before you that uh, in every way unifies our text is an invitation today, which is come and see Jesus. Because you may have noticed that, students, in both halves of our text. You'll notice verse 39, Jesus says to these two disciples of John the Baptist, come and you will see. And then it's in the second half of the text that Philip says to Nathanael in verse 46, come and see. And if your mailbox or inbox is anything like mine at this time of the year, it's full of invitations. Invitations to birthday parties, invitations to weddings, invitations to graduations. But if you haven't received an invitation recently, the Lord has an invitation for you today from this text. He simply is inviting you, isn't he? Come and see Jesus. And I want to show you that in two parts. So first, I want you to come and see the Savior. Look again. Verse 35 begins with actually a quite important phrase. The next day. Now, kids, if you look down at verse 43, the second half of our text, the same phrase shows up, doesn't it? The next day. Now, if you look up to last week's text, verse 29, what's there starting off verse 29? The next day. So you need to understand that what we have here in John's gospel is something like the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry told in quick succession. So day one, John the Baptist is interrogated by these religious leaders about his identity and his authority. Day two, he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. And so where we find ourselves is day three, immediately following what John the Baptist announced the day before at the River Jordan. And what does he say on day three? Notice the exact same thing he said the day before. He's walking with two of his disciples, verse 36. John looked at Jesus as he walked by and said... Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, it's, it's always kind of struck me, this, this part of John's gospel, because I don't know if it's true, but it seems quite likely uh, that John the Baptist, as prophets, had unique personalities always. Uh, he, he seems to be this kind of personality that, that wherever he saw Jesus, he would just kind of expostulate, as the old preachers would say, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus was coming towards him the previous day. What did he say? Behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, Jesus is walking by him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Maybe the next day, Jesus was walking across from him. Behold, the Lamb of God. Maybe the next day after that, Jesus was walking away from him. Behold, the Lamb of God. Don't you think that some of his disciples might be like, John, we know who that is. But there's something about it, isn't there, that is quite useful for when you come to a local church like ours, shouldn't it be the same thing over and over? Look at who Jesus is. Uh, when children wake up at your house, day in and day out, don't you want to share something about the Savior with them, with sincerity and fervency? And when you walk into your workplace, don't you want to represent who Jesus is each and every day? There's something about John's patient consistency in preaching the gospel that is quite instructive to us. And, and two of his disciples take his word because you'll notice how the text continues in verse 37. They follow Jesus and verse 38 says that Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, 
What are you seeking? He's trying, isn't he, to, to draw something out of them. And I wonder if even someone asked you a, a question just like that today. What are you seeking? What would be your answer? Because think about it. Of all the places you could be today, why are you here? Of all the people you could be with today, why are you here? What are you seeking, Jesus says. Well, they answer his question, don't they? With a question of their own. You'll notice they respond in verse 38, Rabbi, where are you staying? It's hard to know exactly why they asked that question in that way. You'll see that the text goes on to say in verse 39 that it was late in the afternoon, something like 4 p.m. So, so maybe they're just seeking a place where they can sleep. Maybe they're just seeking a place where they can stay. It's probably uh, more likely that what they're wanting is something like a private conversation with Jesus to learn something more about this Lamb of God, and they don't want to have that conversation there on the street side or, or out in, in public. Uh, whatever the actual nature of the question is, you'll see Jesus' answer is simply a summons. Come, and you will see. Uh, Surely there's uh, many of you in the room today that can think about a time in in life past when uh, the Lord Jesus, through his word and and through his spirit, have basically said something like this to you. Uh, You're seeking for Forgiveness, you're seeking for life, you're, you're seeking for meaning, for satisfaction, for peace, for rest. Come, uh, and you will see. It's an invitation, isn't it, to exploration. And what the text is going to go on to show us is actually an invitation, isn't it, uh, to salvation itself. I have a, a pastor that I know that loves to tell this story about a little child being at home one day and answering the phone. And he answered and said, hello. And the voice on the other line said, is your father there? And the child responded by saying, no, he's busy. Well, is your mother there? Came the next question. Well, no, she's busy too. And the kid says, well, the police and the neighbors are outside though. And he said, well, can I speak with one of them? And the child says, well, no, they're busy too. And the man says, well, what's everyone busy doing? And he says under a whisper with some hint of glee, they're looking for me. (laughs) Some of you might be able to regale us with stories this afternoon, wouldn't you? Of similar times when a child was playing a game of hide and seek. And you didn't know they were playing a game of hide and seek. And that desperation you had, where is he or where is she? And that delight you had when she was found or or he was found, it pales. It has to, doesn't it? Pale in comparison to the discovery that these followers of John the Baptist made. Notice what the text tells us as it continues, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We've found the Messiah, which means Christ. Part of the good news of Jesus, no doubt, is he can be found by anyone at any time. 
And here is, here's Andrew. Understand Andrew from the other Gospels. We know he's an ordinary fisherman. We know, therefore, he wasn't training in these rabbinic schools to be an expert in the Bible as a scribe or a teacher might be. But, but he clearly knew his Old Testament well enough that he was expecting that his life's orientation even was around the coming Messiah so that he can say, we have finally found him. And that kind of ordinariness that might belong even to your vocation. Uh, let it have that, that similar uh, orientation and expectation around, around the coming of, of Jesus. Uh, but what Jesus goes on to do, if you take the first words that we get from Jesus in this gospel as, as words of a gracious invitation, what are you seeking? Come and you will see. Uh, the second words of Jesus is that of an authoritative power for transformation. Look at verse 42. Peter comes... Simon comes, actually, and Jesus says, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It was understood, wasn't it, throughout the Old Testament age that the Messiah was going to come. And he was going to have peculiar knowledge and, and peculiar power. What you need to see here is something of the Lord's love of changing people present from the outset of Jesus' ministry. You might know, think just about the book of Genesis, for example. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. That the Lord loves to take people, call people to himself, and make them into whom he calls them to be, even changes them to be, transforms them. And so who is Peter but just an ordinary Fisherman in the area of Galilee, who becomes the most extraordinary preacher and apostle of Jesus Christ, such as the power of, of this Christ. And if the Lord has called you, if the Lord has summoned you, know that the same thing is true. He will make you into what he calls you to be. So come and see a Savior next. Come and see we want to see the king. Verse 43 tells us the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, maybe it's instructive enough that you notice how the Lord calls people in different ways, doesn't he? But he's calling them through the same truth. With, with Andrew and this other disciple that's not named, likely it's John the Apostle for sure, I think, uh, that he's, he's summoning them, inviting them. C come, sit down and evaluate, explore, and, and, and discover the truth about me. Sometimes, like it is with Philip, isn't it? A much more direct, declarative, decisive moment. Follow me. And I wonder if, if you've come to Jesus, how did the Lord call you? The same Lord called you, but he might have done it in a different way compared to the person sitting next to you. Uh, Philip evidently followed Jesus immediately because you'll see what happens in verse 45. He finds his friend Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's a way of saying, students, that we found him of whom the Old Testament has predicted. There was this time many years ago where two friends and I went to something of an obstacle course competition. 
It was this obstacle course that was in this building that stretched out, I don't know, 100 yards by maybe 50 yards. It was a very large building, and this was a competition that came with two simple caveats, the first of which is the three of us had to complete each part together. We could never be separated. And we thought, you know, that's, that's simple enough. But then we walked into the door, the door closed, and we realized that this obstacle course needed to be completed together in pitch black darkness. And so we proceeded to make our way to the finish line in however many minutes it took, you know, up and down, in, under, through, and, and over all of these obstacles. And, you know, it felt like we had traversed this entire building multiple times by the time we got to the finish line. And we were genuinely astounded and utterly amazed that when we were done, a few minutes later, they flipped on the light switch. And we realized that for the past however many minutes, we had been confined to this room that was only about 20 yards by 15 yards. And, and the obstacles were just stretched from floor to ceiling. And it was just the turning on of the light that made it all clear. Well, that's exactly what's there in that room. And for Philip and for those early disciples... Meeting Jesus was like turning the light on in the Old Testament. It's like, ah, we finally see it. We finally understand it clearly. We found the Messiah that was proclaimed, prophesied, and predicted. And maybe you've had a similar experience even in your own life of discipleship where you finally have realized and come to understand that every page in the Old Testament scriptures, it's this truth about Christ hidden in type and shadow, but then when he comes and shines his light back on it, it's, ah, suddenly it makes sense. And that making sense, it caused Philip to be overwhelmed in excitement. Finally, we found him, he says to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you'll notice, isn't nearly as excited immediately. Look at verse 46. He says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It could be that there's just this kind of first century rivalry that belonged between the towns like Nazareth and Bethsaida. It could be something more simple, if you will, that Nathaniel's simply saying, really? The Messiah is going to come from Nazareth? Uh, whatever the exact reason for the question was, notice Philip's invitation and response. He says in verse 46, come and see. And I hope you know that sometimes that's the best thing you can do with doubters and skeptics. Come and see. Evaluate. Explore. Examine the truth for yourself. And so as they're walking towards Jesus, Philip and Nathaniel, notice what Jesus does and even declares in verse 47. He says of Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Kids, that, that word for deceit in its original form, it actually had a word picture of bait on a, like a fishing hook. You know, something that does deceive you. It hides the actual uh, truth. But as the context is soon going to make clear, what, what, what's uh, animating a lot of what Jesus is saying is this rich Old Testament background about the patriarch named Jacob, whom God changed into the name of, of Israel. Uh, a patriarch that you might know was known for what? Great deceit. Even his father Isaac, when Jacob had swindled his older brother Esau out of the blessing, he declares, your brother acted deceitfully against you. And so it seems as though even what Jesus is declaring in verse 49 is, is we've found an, an Israelite here in whom there is no trace of Jacob 
left. And Nathaniel, in hearing this from Jesus, is quite overwhelmed. And he would have been overwhelmed for a number of different reasons, but verse 48 has him asking the question, how do you know me? Maybe, maybe Philip said something about you. Or maybe Andrew said something about me. How do you know who I am? Uh, well, Jesus shows just the degree of his knowledge. You see verse 48 at the end, before Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. It belonged to Old Testament Jewish expectation that when the Messiah arrived, he wouldn't need to know names. Because the Messiah won't need to know names. He knows. And so you can understand Nathaniel in that moment, realizing that someone knows my name. Not just that, someone saw me. When I thought no one was looking. And so you see the Savior's kind of personal invite here, but you also see the Savior's supernatural sovereignty in sight, which can be a scary thing, can't it? Lord Jesus came to you last night and said, I saw you today. What did he see? What did he observe? What were you doing? Would not for all of us? He has seen something of sin in us that deserves his judgment, that deserves his wrath, such as the tender mercy and compassionate heart of this Savior. He's come, hasn't he, to bring life to those that look unto him. And you'll see Nathaniel does just that. Verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Come and see the Christ. Come and see King, this text is telling you, come and see Jesus. I have this friend that loves a particular sports team. And you might be such a person, you know, is always paying attention to news about what's going on in the locker room, always up to date on certain uh, player possibilities that, that might join the team. And so at the end of the week, he receives to his inbox something called This Week at United. And uh, in many ways, what, what John is giving us right at the outset of his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus could be summarized as this week in looking unto Jesus. And if there ever was something like a this week in looking unto Jesus in that first century context, uh, permit me to uh, read something to you that, that I wrote, because this is at least how I would have articulated such a report after this first week. Breaking news, breaking news. Our prophet for the people, John the Baptist, finally saw the Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin has been revealed and word is getting out. A few of the baptizer's disciples have started to form a band of brothers around the Christ. Two of them are fishermen. One of them is Greek. Another doesn't want to be named, but we all know it's John. And then there's Nathaniel, that constant skeptic. Who would have ever thought he'd believe in a Messiah from Nazareth? But dear readers, be prepared. We have it on good authority, the law and the prophets, that people you never thought would come and see the Savior will indeed come and see. We surely will have more amazing news next week. We hear Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. Those money collectors in the temple better beware. For the next week, should the Lord tarry and allow Someone could write a report of your life 
that is nothing more than this week and looking unto Jesus. And I wonder what content would be in that report. What actions would be in that report? What words would be in that report? Let me tell you two things from this text that I hope would be in that report. Number one, you must have faith in who Jesus is. Uh, John is intent on us knowing who Jesus is. We said that at the outset. And do you notice how in this passage, what he's doing is piling up all of these truths about who Jesus is in one verse after the other. Because glance back to verse 35. Here's John telling us he's the Lamb of God. Verse 38, he's also rabbi, which means teacher. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And of course, Nathaniel says in verse 49, he is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. And you'll notice Jesus adds to it himself at the end of the passage. Because Nathaniel, after hearing what Jesus saw, after hearing his name spoken in this way as an Israelite without any guile, uh, Jesus says, verse 50 and 51, notice, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on whom? the Son of Man. Now, now, kids and students, it may not strike you when you read verse 51 of anything particularly significant about angels ascending and descending. But there's no doubt that those men listening to Jesus on that day would almost have been struck out of their minds by what they just heard. That angels are going to ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Because it goes all the way back to the original Israel, to Jacob in the book of Genesis. You might remember he's sleeping one night and he has a dream. And what's that dream? Jacob's ladder. Heaven coming down to earth. What does he see? But angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And if you know how that story goes, he wakes up in the morning and he declares, I didn't realize what was going on. He says, quote, how awesome is this place where heaven has come down to earth. And John's gospel is here that you might have faith in who Jesus is. But it's not how awesome is this place, is it? It's how awesome is this person. In him, heaven has come down to earth. This week in looking unto Jesus, may you have faith in who Jesus is. Secondly, you must follow where Jesus goes. You notice you can even read through the rest of, or this passage later on this afternoon, this verb that just shows up. It's just thrown in there, but it's altogether significant, isn't it? About following Jesus. You see verse 37. These two disciples of the baptizer heard him say, Behold the Lamb of God, and they followed Jesus. They followed him back to where he was. Jesus summons in verse 43, Follow me. And Philip did. Now following Jesus is altogether simple, isn't it? You go where he goes. You love what he loves. You value what he values. You hate what he hates. You say what he says. You desire what he desires. But there's something unique about this rabbi, this Messiah, this King in Christ Jesus, because he does something that no rabbi would have done at this time. 
Because what normally happened with first century rabbis is it's almost as though you received applications for people that would follow you. Disciples would, would decide which rabbi they wanted to follow. Jesus isn't doing that, is he? He's saying, these are my people whom I call to follow me. So there's a sovereign summons, isn't there? And good news, there's sovereign grace for rebels and sinners like you who don't want to follow him. May understand in that direct declaration that Philip heard so many years ago, it might strike your heart this morning in the simplest of ways that overcomes all of your opposition and all of your rebellion. Follow me. Or it might be like the invitation at the beginning of the text. Come and see Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us the grace to hear your son's voice and this day by your word and through your spirit that we might follow you fully, that we might follow you faithfully. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen.